Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 334. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about a brand new event from Lended FinTech. FinTech Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit will be the first major in-person fintech event of the past 18 months. A hand-curated audience of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors will be meeting face-to-face at an event 100% focused on doing deals. It will be happening in Miami on September 1st and 2nd. You can apply to join and find out more at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Bob Courtright. He is the CEO and founder of DriveWealth. Now, DriveWealth is a super interesting company. They are really one of the pioneers of the embedded finance space. They have created the ability for any company to embed stock trading, fractional stock trading into their app. But there's so much more than that, which we actually get into in some depth on the show. You know, Bob shares how they were the first company to ever introduce fractional stock trading and what that meant for his company. We talk about how the technology works, some of the big names that are actually using uh, Drive Wealth today to enable stock trading. And we also talk about how brands, non-financial brands, should be really thinking about this opportunity. We talk about crypto, of course, and Bob gives some hints as to what the vision is for Drive Wealth and how they're moving beyond stock trading. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've had a pretty interesting career when I look at your LinkedIn profile. So why don't you just touch on some of the highlights? I started actually in the FX business, a company called Rothschild, and Rothschild back in the early 80s, doing FX arbitrage. So I had a long experience working in risk management, trading, portfolio management, worked in a hedge fund for a number of years. But after about 15, 20 years in the business, I decided that there was an opportunity to go on my own and build a retail FX platform. And that was back in late 1999 when Clinton signed the Commodity Modernization Act, which allowed for retail FX. Mm-hmm. And as you know, back then, there was a big rise in building retail FX trading platforms around the world for retail traders. First time they really had real access on a platform to trade retail currencies. So, you know, we started a company called FX Solutions. Learned a lot from that experience. This is starting really early 2000 throughout the really the crazy times of FX, learned a lot about how to build a business. And one of the things we've learned there was that the real power of aggregated retail, which obviously plays into why we started Drive Wealth in 2012. We saw a lot of things around the world in terms of the appetite for retail FX trading by retail investors, but they didn't really have a really good access, affordable access to the most premier market in the world. That was US equities. And obviously, as you know, the technology, the NASDAQ and what's going on in the technology sector and a lot of these other e-commerce firms around the world, I mean, there's been a huge boom in value in these tech companies. So we wanted to obviously, when we built DriveWealth, to emulate some of the things we did at FX Solutions in terms of giving people affordable access around the world. What we realized through that boom was it was really the global infrastructure set up in brokerage, as they called it was not really suitable for digital advice or digital experience on a phone or a digital device. So that's kind of how we got to where we are today in terms of building out a real viable business 
is really we focus on the infrastructure side. Right. Uh, I'll go back a little bit here, Peter. I don't want to take too much time in the beginning, but in the late 2008s, 9s, when we had the advent of wealth management or robo, as people call it today, from some of these guys like Betterman and Wealthfront coming around, and then the big boom with, with Robinhood and direct you know, trading and equities, zero commission trading. And then obviously, then we had the savings boom with uh, the guys like Acorns and Stash and things like that. Those were great B2C products, but to really be viable and grow the business over time, we understood that the infrastructure had to be rebuilt as well. Right. Tell us a little bit about the timing then. So it was 2012, was that when you started Drive Wealth? Really late 2012. Really the first couple of years of Drive Wealth was really working with the regulators in terms of you know getting the right license. So think about this back then when you went to the regulators, you, know, you wanted to be global retail. You wanted to address the retail market globally, give them access. That was part of the whole democratization rage, right? Going back, democratizing whether it was banking or, or lending or anything else, democratizing the retail markets so anybody could participate. But also one of the things, you know, we wanted to do retail, we wanted to work through the social networks, which was in their minds, you know, they're thinking about a Facebook and things like that, which I think today it's still a possibility. I mean, a lot of these firms are entering into the financial services business. You hear the term all the time that everyone's a fintech company. Right. Everyone's involved in financial services. That's, you know, that wasn't the thought by the regulators back in 2012, 13, 14. But the primary goal for me then too was to get the ability like FX and like crypto today is to fractionalize investing in equities, right? Because we saw the trend of large price stocks. There are three cornerstones of investing in my mind with compound interest, diversification through your portfolio and dollar cost averaging. And you want to make it affordable for anybody with any amount of money to be able to do that. And the only way to do that was to fractionalize the securities. That took about two and a half years. When I first you know, brought it up to the regulators in 2013, you know, if it wasn't retail, which is their primary goal is to protect retail, and then global retail was a little even more scarier because the AML KYC concerns. Right. But retail suitability. And the last thing was, you know, what do you mean by social networks? And that was really the advent of these great digital wallets that were creating these ecosystems around these you know, big applications around financial services that we really saw started in China back in the early days of 10 cents and the JD.coms and such. Right. I hear you talking there. It feels like you were early. You might have even been a little too early, it seems, in some ways. But obviously, you're still around, so you've survived the early days. How long did it take to get your first paying client? You know, I'm always early. It felt like that in the FX space. It felt like that in risk management space, a lot of things that we're doing. I always, people laugh that, you know, yeah, you have to survive those first couple of years and being early is not the best way to do that. <laughs> I really had... Based on my past businesses, not only FX Solutions, but Financial Labs and, and the great team I had there, we really had a conviction to the fact that the whole infrastructure stack had to be rebuilt. And our commitment to it was pretty high. We had a lot of experience building businesses, so we did it in a pretty lean way. We had a lot of experienced people, not only in the brokerage space, and I'd love to talk about embedded finance and what I mean, the difference between brokerage. and Brokerage is really just the underlying regulatory product. But we really stuck to our conviction that the equity space, interesting enough, was so disjointed, in my view, versus what we were doing in the FX space and recreating that for retail that it was obvious to me that that had to be transformed, right? So the idea that a stack that basically has so many different parts to it, you had introducing brokers, you had basically firms like Broadridge doing stock, you know, AML, KYC and taxing and yet clearing firms and execution firms and custodians. 
I mean, everybody had their hand in the stack and which not really conducive to an affordable retail experience. And I have to say, one of the great things about this is building that infrastructure. We have so many great partners now around the world. They are so heavily focused on that user experience, which is tremendous. I give kudos to them because they're the ones building the experience for the customer. And we're just supplying the plumbing to build these cool products. Right. So can you just describe the plumbing? What is it that you're actually doing? How does your technology work? Really, the underlying product is brokerage. But it's the way we're basically building out the APIs in a very unique way to allow customers to you know, really customize that experience on the front side, on their user experience side. They're the ones that build the application. So, right, so we have probably over close to 150 or more different APIs today because there's a lot of things involved in brokerage, right? There's a lot of regulatory requirements. I mean, I love some of the ideas that the fintechs come up with, but from a regulatory standpoint, it's just not a viable way to do business. You can't do some of these things. So we have to be very creative in the way we build. One, think about money movement, right? How do you move money from a real account in Brazil to a U.S. dollar account to buy Apple? There's a lot of things that go into actually executing the trade. You have to convert the currency. Trading securities has to be done in U.S. dollars if it's a U.S. security. So you have to do that in a very seamless way so the customer can literally onboard their account, register as, and become a brokerage account, right? And do that in a way it's so seamless and efficient so the customer doesn't feel the pain of going through all that process. So we build all these things through API. Our big goals here now in 2022 is to make that as seamless as possible to create the API layer that's very digestible for a partner. But we do a lot of the work on the backside through the APIs. And they create a lot of different functionality that the customer can experience in a seamless way and makes it painless for our partners as well. Right, right. And so I just want to touch on fractional trading. You mentioned it. You know, you look at some of the most popular stocks in the world there in that some of them are trading for thousands of dollars a share. How important was fractional trading really to sort of getting you guys some momentum? And when did you actually enable fractional trading for your customers? We pioneered fractional trading. We've got the licenses back in 2013 to be the first real-time fractional trading platform in the world. Okay. And the reason we did that was because of my FX experience. Right? I knew that somebody with $100 might want to buy Berkshire Hathaway A, for instance, right. or Amazon. And like I said before, the pillars of really successful investing is diversification and dollar cost averaging. If you want to put $50 to work every two weeks when you get paid, you want to put that in a diversified portfolio, you need a fractional trading to do that. We saw very early at FX Solutions, people could buy a dollar's worth of yen, right? And that was incredibly successful. I mean, back in those days, as the retail platforms developed in FX, it was the exchanges that were offering all these currency contracts, as you know, were quite big. There were quite large contracts and it took a lot of, of risk if you had to buy one contract of yen or Swiss francs or whatever. We saw that same theory we put to, to equities, right? If you want to buy a good portfolio of, of securities and you only have $50 a month to invest, fractionalization was critical. We don't really call it fractionalization. That's just the mechanical process. It's really the ability to do notional trading, right? And when you go back to it, you think of financial services, most people think about the money they have to invest. They don't think, in, you know, how many shares of Amazon can I buy? Well, I can't even buy one. So I want to start with $100. You know, that's the interesting thing. I don't want to dwell on too much, but that's the big transformation in the world, say, in equities, right? All the other businesses, even when you talk about crypto, eight decimal points, and it's, you know, it's decimalized. And we believe in that. The whole idea is now that the equities business with zero commissions, what Robinhood did, and thinking about that, the equities business has become a notional spread capture business just like every other business. 
It's no longer a share commission-based business because people aren't charging commissions anymore. Really, it's a struggle to do that. And I imagine that would have been a real driving force for your business too, right? It wasn't that long ago where you couldn't trade shares for less than $7 or $5, not that long ago. I mean, it's not that long ago. Then a couple of years ago, they were still advertising, you know, constantly four ninety five a trade. And they thought that was a big revolution. And then all of a sudden it was zero. And they finally capitulated. It took them a number of years to do it. And then you saw quite quickly after that, the invention of fractionalization, right? Where people started calling it slices or whatever else. We've been doing this from day one, understanding that to really engage young investors. And, and I really think it's the key behind financial literacy, right? We've been talking about embedded finance for five, six years now. The reason embedded finance is different than brokerage is brokerage is basically someone decides they have enough affluence that they want to go on. They want to start investing in a different way or open a brokerage account, which is very intimidating. Not everybody feel comfortable that they have the knowledge to do it. Embedded finance is much different, right? Embedded finance, you're actually participating in it with small amounts of money, taking small risk, based even on your behaviors at times. Sometimes it's not even your own money. It's rewards you're getting like stockbacks or roundups, things you're doing in your consumer behavior that translates into your investing behavior. That's why it's so powerful. And that's why embedded finance, I think, is in its early days. And it's being done all over the world, right, in terms of the way they offer things to their customer base. Yep. So how much are you focused inside the U.S. with enabling your services there versus outside the U.S.? Well, we don't discriminate. We work with people that really want to offer a really cool product, investing product, and help their cup, you know, their client base improve their financial situation, their life financial situation. Then the beautiful thing about the way these APIs have developed and evolved over the years is it allows anybody in Latin America or in Asia or even Europe or here in the States to build a product is the same, right? They're just utilizing the same APIs. So if a large digital wallet wants to build something out of Latin America, it's no different than what you know Revolut does in Europe. It's the same process. They just put their own customized twist on it and what they want to offer to the customer. So then say I'm running a fintech, it could be in the US, it could be Brazil or whatever. And I, I think, you know, there's been demand for stock trading from my customers. I want to offer a stock trading solution. What's the timeline? What's involved from start to finish? And how will you enable them to do that? Yeah. So let me just go back for a second on what you said before. I mean, the interesting point you're making is really it's the regulatory environment that is the real hurdle. Every country has some, you know, jurisdictionally, they have some different regulatory rules. So that you have to understand very well. We've been doing it, obviously, for a long time now, going on seven, eight years, where we basically are, you know, spending a lot of legal time in these countries, understanding the legal environment. So that is the time for it. That's what really manages how long the time to launch, to your question, right? It's not technology. The integration period, I mean, we've had guys who are sophisticated, put a team to it, can do it, launch in 30 days right? Launch a product in 30 days, right? Really what the constraint is, is really understanding the regulatory environment and what they want to do, what type of products they want to offer to make sure that it's compliant with their local jurisdiction, right? For instance, we can't just walk into a country and, you know, obviously people have had this, they've seen this in real time and solicit customers directly. You just can't do that, right? I mean, you've got to be locally registered. There's different things. So we work with partners that are locally regulated and abide by the local jurisdictional rules. We just launched TOS in South Korea. Technology-wise, they're very sophisticated and had a great product and a great wallet and doing some really cool things with that. But it was the regulatory issues that we had to get through with the KSD and things like that. That's what makes it difficult. That's what takes the time. Right, And that's where the real knowledge comes in. Cooperating my whole life in the FX business, which is a global business, as you know, moving monies from cross borders is not as always as simple as it sounds. 
It's the same with regulatory in terms of people investing in securities. Some countries don't even allow people to invest in securities outside their country. So we're getting through all that. And that's the big hurdle in terms of timing. So have you found like from the US regulators, is there positive feedback coming from them? Because I see what you're doing is retracting capital into this country from all around the world to the, you know, obviously the stock exchanges here are, are the largest in the world. And a lot of people want to own the companies that trade here. And so, I mean, I'm just curious about that because you're basically bringing money into the country. Is that something that the regulators appreciate? Thanks for mentioning that, Peter, because they don't really see that deeply sometimes in the sense that we're bringing good capital to these companies that, that are doing well in this country and people want to consume and they want to own, right? And it's a really powerful thing. And one of the things when we deal with regulators outside the country and in different parts of the world, we explain to them is that the people don't leave the country, it's the money that leaves the country. And that's they're concerned about that sometimes. Like, oh, we don't want, let me look at China right now, you know, cross currency movements and stuff. They're kind of cracking down on people leaving, investing outside, which I think is a foolish game, right? Because the people aren't leaving. They're just looking for a better return on their money, right? If you don't let people do that, if you don't let people participate in the real growth areas of the world, and some of it's been our tech world or e-commerce world, we've had some really great successful companies. I mean, what, Apple just hit $3 trillion in market value? I mean, you want to be invested in those great companies, right? So you're not going to keep up if you're sitting in a country, for instance, like in Africa. I mean, they've really recognized that their citizen investing outside and being part of the world investing are getting returns on their capital that they're not getting internally in their own local country. But that money comes back into the community, gets spent in the local community. They start businesses in the local community, grow confidence from a financial standpoint. People like Tipper Cash, these companies are doing amazing things in their local geographies in Africa. It's a great point that you make that having the ability, and I think COVID did this too, right? right. And then this whole idea of COVID, people shut down their borders, the first reaction, shut down your borders. But it actually had the opposite effect in financial services. It globalized financial services because everybody was chasing yield now. When the government started printing a lot of money, interest rates went to zero. People were saying, how can I get a return on my money? How do I protect my currency or how do I get you know diversification out of my currency? The regulators here understand that value. They do. You know, they're promoting the U.S. capital markets, best companies in the world, to your point. And the more capital, the more things we can do. I think countries that really try to shut down the border and cross-border investment is not going to end well. Right, right. Can you give us some sort of metrics on the scale? How much flows through your platform? What are some of the metrics you could share? We're not an AUM business like an advisor. Right, business, sure. Right? So you see guys like Schwab and TD merging. You see you know, Morgan Stanley buying T-Trade. To me, these weren't technology advances. These were basically you know, consolidation of costs and growing their assets on the manager so they can charge more, make more money, right? Our business is actually transactional, which is different than most brokerage businesses and where they're going today, right? They're more looking at asset management and the things they can do from asset management side. We are looking really at more embedded finance. So we have customers that literally do 40, 50,000 transactions a day on their own. I mean, and these are maybe anywhere from $5 trades to $230. I mean, it's not a typical thing, but at the opening of the day, we may have over a million orders lined up at the opening. We've kind of replaced the smile in their stock change in the way we created the ability to get ready to open up at the trade. And now we obviously do, you know, pre-market open and pre-market trading or a post-market trading. But yeah, literally our bigger customers do tens of thousands of transactions a day. Wow. Okay. So then can you tell us some of the names that maybe we recognize that uh, you're working with today? Let me first preface that by saying I don't favor any one or the other because 
the appreciation I have for our partners and amazing things they're doing within these digital wallet ecosystems or, or what people are building these ecosystems around retail financial services are just amazing. They're producing the experience, right? They've built a brand. They're providing the user experience. We're just providing the plumbing to do these things on the wealth management investment side. Some do a little bit more trading, but not most. Most of them were financial literacy oriented investing, portfolio management. You know, it runs the gamut anywhere from someone like a Revolut in Europe, who's a very active customer, has got a really great base, they've done a really great job, to someone like Moneyline here in the United States doing more banking and wealth management for their customers. And then you have someone like Stake in Australia who's doing more day trading, more like a Robinhood type environment, right? More sophisticated, bigger trading sizes, things like that. And also, you know, it could be a credit union. That's offering their members, obviously, the ability to invest in a very, very simple and obviously, like you said, with fractional trading in a very basically digestible way, like put a $50, $100 a month away into a portfolio. So it runs the gamut. But it really is our partners are doing a tremendous job building these experiences. What about like big brands that not necessarily maybe outside of finance? How should they be thinking about drive wealth offering? They are. The idea here is back to the embedded finance idea. It's not that these companies want to become brokerage companies. They don't want to be brokerages, right? But what they want to do is offer their customers, their valuable or loyal clients, a better use of their capital and grow their capital. So one, they can spend more money on their platforms or they can have a better you know, life in terms of financially and they become more financially literate by just experiencing it by doing, right? So what they're really looking at is, is they're really looking at the embedded finance trend, offering things like rewards, stock. If you even think about a, a, the gig economy, right? Having a wallet for your customer, right? Or your gig partner, you can provide them with, with rewards. You can provide them with bonuses. You can provide them with, with stock plans, HSA, health savings accounts are exploding under us. We're doing a lot of cool stuff with some great partners in the HSA space. So providing your loyal customers access to financial products they didn't have before at a very affordable rate, right? Just promotes their affluence. It's lifting all boats, really, because they're having more disposable income because of the way they can invest now at a much smaller cost, for sure. Right, right. I've also seen things like, I think there's a couple of fintechs that are doing this where, you know, you might buy a burrito at Chipotle and you can get like five cents or 10 cents worth of stock. They're onto it, Peter. Right. You know, it's funny when some of these other companies build portfolios, I think, you know, they had a contest and said, okay, build your model portfolio. And it was a bunch of kids, like 12-year-old kids that won the whole thing in terms of return over the course of the year because all they put in the portfolios are things that their older friends and them were consuming. That's a genius idea, right? So buy what you know, as Peter Lynch used to say, buy what you understand is what, you know, Warren Buffett used to say. Those are performing really well. So you go to your local Starbucks and you swipe for a latte and you get five cents or 25 cents of a latte stock, of a Starbucks stock. I mean, that's that's where we're going, right? I mean, that promotes the brands. It promotes what you're consuming. So that's what I'm talking about, consumer behavior relating to investable behavior. And these are people that open up a brokerage account through these ecosystems that don't even never thought about, I'm going to fill out the paperwork and go to Schwab, right? They're basically, they're a loyal customer of someone who has a wallet and now they're getting this added benefit of, okay, it takes a couple of extra clicks because they already have a banking, right? So it only takes a couple extra things to verify your brokerage account. It's opened up within a minute or two. And now they're getting benefits on, like you said, stock rewards or roll-ups on their purchases and things like that. Literally, we could build a portfolio of 30, 40 stocks with a dollar. So it's, you know, 
It's very powerful over time. It's very engaging, by the way. Hey, how am I doing this week? What did I get? What did I earn? And you watch this nest egg grow in a, in a way that you would never have done in a brokerage account. Right. I want to talk about the huge growth of retail in 2021. We started off the year um, with this sort of meme stock craze, like the GameStop and AMC and those sort of stocks. I'd love to get your perspective on that because it felt like for the first time, individual stock investing was on the front page, not just of business journals, but of just regular newspapers. And what did that do for your business? And what's your perspective on it? We're not really a day trading shop. We're not, you know, an active trading shop. We really, our partners are really looking for investments and wealth management products and building portfolios, like you said, rewards over time, that embedded finance versus brokerage mentality. But it brought awareness for sure. I mean, just to give you an idea, you know, we started 2021 with about 8 million accounts and now we have closer to 17 million accounts today, predicting probably to double that this year with the type of partners that we're bringing on. But it's created a lot of awareness and people are much more curious about it for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, you had the Reddit phenomenon, you know, that really benefited the Robin Hoods and, and the brokerage type, you know, the Webulls and those guys. Our partners are much more focused on the wealth creation for their clients, right? So obviously the people understand that it's happening. They understand that they can get involved. So the awareness factor has gone way up. What I think now is becoming really important and we're seeing it evolve is the financial literacy aspect. People are now saying, because of the phenomenon, right, we need to better educate people. And I think the same thing is when we look and we're out to enter the crypto space, we're looking you know, to model our, our equities business after what we're going to do in crypto. And we think education is such a critical part of that, right? You know, it's interesting you know, to speculate and spend a few dollars on buying buying a cryptocurrency and seeing what happens. But when you start to think about long-term, how it fits in your investments and your portfolio, uh, that's a different thing. People need to get literally financially literate around diversification, risk, those types of things. So some of the partners that we're working with now on the crypto side really understand that they want to make sure that their customers get that value of education and literacy before they jump in. Yeah, that's really good points. Just to make sure that it balances out, you know, their whole financial life. Right. I want to talk about crypto just for a second. I know we're almost out of time, but your business, from what I understand it, is all obviously it's based on equities trading in the US stock market, uh, make that available to anybody. But crypto, obviously, it's 24-7. It's, as you say, it's fractionalized down to, I don't know, eight, 10 decimal places. Do you have plans to incorporate crypto trading into what you're doing or how you think about crypto? We're not really in the sense of we're not an equities platform, right? We're a platform for retail investing. Mm-hmm. So let's start right there, right? Okay. We're building a, an infrastructure and a platform that allows people to, from a retail compliant suitability standpoint, invest in anything that they want to consume, right? So the funny thing is, like I mentioned before, you need to go from fiat to buy a hard asset of security, right? And then people want to take some of those hard assets and convert them into cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, aren't an asset by themselves, right? They're just like fiat, but they're in the virtual world. They're a way to a means to exchange for goods. And then you've got the virtual asset world, I think is going to be an amazing place to be too. So what Drivewell's ambition is really to be a retail platform, the exchange of things. Any retail asset that you want to consume can be done through our platform. We want to bridge the real hard asset world with the virtual world and let people invest where they want. Obviously, that's why literacy, financial literacy comes into hand. I mean, do you buy 
what board gorillas or whatever that, that you can consume <laughs> or, or do you have a mixture of some apple and some tesla and stuff in there right you might want to own some bitcoin whatever but my point is is that whatever the you know our partners in the retail industry the industrial clients want to consume from an investment standpoint we want to provide we're really looking at our international expansion now and international securities right to give people some more diversified you know around the world but you can do that through our etf market very easily so we're looking at the major countries in terms of their exchanges and what they do there just to round that out a bit but we want to be in asset exchange of things that asset exchange we're not saying we're just equities we're going to be nfts and we're going to we already do with you know we work with templum and rally road alternative investments collectibles you can buy a piece of a ferrari you can buy a piece of a baseball card collectibles on our platform, the, our idea is that whatever the retail investment world wants to invest, we want to provide for them. But we want to do it in a very frictionless, fractional way. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Bob. It's been really been interesting uh, chatting. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and best of luck in 2022. Peter, thanks for having me. Okay. See ya. Bye-bye. You know, what an interesting story that is, the DriveWell story. I mean, back in 2012, yeah, fintech was barely a term, let alone embedded finance, and they've really become the world leader in embedded finance for stock trading. And it was really interesting there to hear Bob talk about, you know, they're moving into other areas. You know, they've done such a great job in the stock trading. You can be sitting in dozens of countries around the world now with your smartphone and you can invest in US stocks just like you can do it here in the US. <laughs> That's a very complicated process as Bob shared some of that. What a great thing to do for this country, for the financial system in general, where we have capital being able to flow across borders and go to where it earned a decent return. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Before we go, I want to remind you about the brand new event from Lended Fintech. Fintech Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit, will be the first major in-person fintech event of the past 18 months. A hand-curated audience of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors will be meeting face-to-face at an event 100% focused on doing deals. It will be happening in Miami on September 1st and 2nd. You can apply to join and find out more at lendit.com.